I've never seen anyone split their focus between a ton of different things and do really, really, really well in one of them. And I love conversations. And podcasting is the best place to have long-form conversations, bar none. What if you found yourself in the middle years of life, taking on responsibility, building a family, a reputation, a company, a living, and then, in the blink of an eye, had to start entirely over? Not by choice, but by circumstance. That was the experience of this week's guest, Jordan Harbinger. So one of the pioneering voices in podcasting, he'd been in the space for nearly 15 years, building a big audience and a business around it. But a series of events he never saw coming landed him on the outside looking in wondering, what do I do from here? He could have left the world of media and podcasting and conversation behind and done any number of things. Jordan is a former lawyer with a mind for systems and tech, but he loved the community of podcasting. It's all he wanted to do. So instead, Jordan committed to rebuilding from the ground up his own show, his own career, his own company and team entirely on his terms and under his control from the ground up. Fast forward about five years, Jordan has not only made a comeback, he has built one of the most popular and successful properties in the explosive growth world of podcasting, The Jordan Harbinger Show, many times larger than he dreamed of or honestly even imagined was possible. Jordan and I have known each other for many, many years. We've shared ideas and visions, hopes, dreams, and experiences as we've both navigated the world of audio and inspiration and life. But I wanted to really understand what this recent season of work and life has been like for him, what he's learned, how he accomplished such a breathtaking comeback, what he said no to along the way and why, how passion and relationships have played into this Phoenix-like experience and how he's changed as a human being, as a person, as a father and a husband along the way. And that is where we go in this conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
it's good to be hanging out with you. We've known yeah. each other for a long time now. Um, yeah. And we've spent some time on the mic together on both sides. And so I was thinking about like, there's so many different directions that we, you and I can go in conversation and we do in private conversation. Yeah. Um, some really recent stuff I want to touch on with you and just, I want, I'd love to get your take on some things that are going on in the world these days. Yeah. I also want to sort of like take a step back in time. We have other conversations that are earlier in the podcast. We'll drop those in the show notes, of course, or people who want like, the detailed backstory. But I was reflecting on one thing recently, which is I was actually listening to um, one of the free sort of like downloadable audiobooks on Audible. And it was about phone freakers. Oh, and I, it, I heard it, that one. It brought me right yeah. back to you. And I was like, I could not believe. So for those who don't know what phone freaking is, what's the, the short form version of what this yeah. thing is? So before there, or I shouldn't say before, but around the same time that hackers were like starting to become a thing, the phone system was also kind of like before the internet, there was a big network of other electronic devices and it was phones. And so like why before AOL and even Prodigy and all those, you know, CompuServe type networks, which were not really the internet, guys like me and older, because I was 13 or whatever years old at the time, we would call and we would go, well, wait a minute, you know, theoretically, I'm connected to Japan, North Korea, China, Canada, at the least Mexico. So I, we, we wanted to figure out how these things worked. And so we would dial numbers and we would listen to the tones and we would build devices out of electronics that would make the tones that phones made, not necessarily only the dial tones, but even things like uh, a classic example is when you go to a payphone, and for people who are younger, that's a phone that you put a coin into, and you would put the coin in, and it would mute your your earpiece, but if, if it was broken or that wasn't the case, you would hear, and you'd hear this weird tone when you put in a quarter, and that was the phone telling the network that it, someone had put in a quarter. Because remember, this isn't digital. That payphone has to tell the network, hey, there's a quarter in here. This person paid for the call. And it does that through tones. And so guys like me would figure out what these tones were, guys smarter than me and older than me, would figure out what those tones were. And we would figure out how to mimic them or record them from a payphone. And then what you could do is uh, something that I did when I was younger. I would, you know, you remember record a cards from Hallmark? They probably still have those. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, hi, grandma, it's me and the kids. You know, you'd like put that in the card and it would play when it opened. Well, that's a little digital recorder that has probably 10 seconds of, of uh, solid-state drive, you know, semiconductor memory in it, and it would record a decently high-res enough sound file. So what, what I'd do is I'd go and get that $10 card, rip the card open, take the guts out, and I'd have this little tiny button that went and played a sound every time I hit that. No rewinding, nothing. You know, you don't need a giant tape recorder, which is subject to weather conditions and also looks really weird because it's huge you'd have this little tiny thing that was like the size of a few thumbs put together. Now, I would record the tone off of those payphones that said, this person has put in a quarter, and I could then pick up any payphone anywhere in the United States, probably even also in Canada, put that device up to the, to the mic and flick that little button, and it would make a quarter tone, and then I could do that 50 times, and I could call Japan and China and you know wherever, and they would open the phone and go, there's no money in here, you know? And so they, they yeah. caught on to that pretty quick, but it was very common. Highly illegal. And for a 13 year old, like, yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, and you were, you were actually one of those guys like in real life where you got to knock on the door and it's like, uh, hello. Uh, like this is the FBI here for, uh, Jordan. We've got yeah. an issue. <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a different thing. So this was cell phone freaking or hacking. Uh, that was okay. a different beast, right? That was more serious. Cause now you're talking FCC radio waves, and phone companies 
and credit card companies because they're involved in the payment and the da 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 da. So it that was a even bigger sort of mess. I don't know how much detail you want. I realize I went off on a yeah uh, no and and I think we actually dive into that in one of our earlier conversations. Oh, okay, but, cool. But like zoom the lens out. You know it, what's always been this really fascinating consistent pattern with you is this. You are obsessive about understanding systems. Um, mm-hmm. So for you, it's not like you were trying to get something over on the government or you were trying no. to sort of you know like spend somebody else's money. You're like, ooh, this is sort of like this complex secret, you know, like puzzle. And I need to figure this out. And yeah. it's almost like the more complex it is, the more interested you are in trying to deconstruct it. And that so you start out with technology as a young kid. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the most complex system on the planet, which is sort of like human social dynamics. Yeah. And start to massively geek out and try and figure out what is this thing called? You know, like in, interpersonal relationships and social dynamics and influence and is this a system that's hackable? Right. And, you know, it seems like you just transferred that same Jones to the human condition. 100%. I mean, when I was when I was doing the phone thing and I figured out how to, like, let's say, call Japan for free, I probably did that, like, yeah, it was fun to do a couple prank calls to Japan, which didn't go over well because nobody understood what I was saying and I didn't understand what they were saying and they were probably just pissed off because I woke them up at 3 a.m., you know, calling in, uh, from Michigan. So that wasn't the fun part. The fun part was going... Well, we figured this out. And then it was like, you mess with it for an hour and then you on to the next. And with humans, it was like, you could figure something out, but it was so unpredictable and every person was different. It was like the system was slightly different with each human and men were different than women and older people were different than younger people and smart people were different than dumb people. And it was just like, wait a minute, this has endless variety. So it's a much more, it's a much larger challenge but also the game board is so much bigger. It's probably like checkers versus go, you know, where like you can program a Apple PC, like an Apple from 1985 to play checkers, but to program it to play go and then beat a human is something that I think Google has just only recently done uh, with their AI, right? So it's, it's just a completely different game. And that was endlessly fascinating for me and my friends. And we, we called it social engineering. Like, of course, leave it to us nerds to figure out a way to name human hacking into a totally different thing. And, and it became, initially, it was like for security researchers. And that's still sort of where that science lay primarily. Like people will say, oh, persuasion and influence and things like that. But like a lot of security researchers call it social engineering. And it's figuring out how to trick someone into giving out a password or figuring out how to get somebody to send you something when they're not supposed to send you that thing. You know, that, that was really interesting. And it, again, it was about the system. It was like, can can I convince this book company to send me free books? Great. But then I get the books and I'm like, well, you know, okay, great. Here's my trophy. But that wasn't the point, right? The point was to figure out and see if we could do it. And, and there was a lot of that. Yeah. And it's funny because so you end up at first or like a window in time. And this is where we share a, a history in, in, in the practice of law. And all of these things go into the practice of law. You know, like fundamentally, like when you're a lawyer, you're trying to figure out how do I understand like what's happening between human beings in a room or in a dynamic? And then how do we actually create an outcome? Like how do we how do you create a social dynamic which leads to an outcome which is constructive, you know, like for your client, but then maybe depending on how you're wired, you know, like for everybody in the room. It was funny. I was thinking about sort of your time in the law and my time in the law. And I was thinking about how you were describing sort of like social, social hacking. When I started out, I, I started out as a lawyer in the SEC, in the enforcement office, in like oh, yeah. a giant federal agency in New York. 
And um, they weren't prepared for us. There was like six of us newbies that showed up <laughs> one day. They didn't have room. They're about to move offices. We hired so they, you guys? Are you sure? I know. They, they literally forgot about us for six months. And they put us kind of like secreted away in this room off the side of a library on a different floor with carols that they threw in there. And for, we basically just were twiddling our thumbs around a conference table. So we started actually sitting around a table. And here are like six young lawyers knew nothing about what they were doing. And trying to, you know, like kind of wait for people to give us work. And so we're like, all right, so there's a, there's a candy machine on this floor. Hmm. And one guy like orders like the roll of Jolly Rogers and, and he, and he, he gets the roll and he like gets a candy out one day and he's like, I cannot get these plastic wrappers. They're, they're glued onto the candy. So then six legal minds sit around a table spending like probably the better part of a week Mm -hmm. sort of like engineering this letter with like every ounce of influence we know to send to the, like the, the candy company to complain and sort of like, like this was a devastating blow to our humanity. And, um, and then we get back like a couple of weeks later, a couple of cases of candy and we're like, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. an interesting game. Good use so like, of what, government what resources. <laughs> right. We're like, what else can we do here? And it was, uh, um, but it was funny cause it's like, you know, like these ideas can be put to use in the most silly ways but also in the biggest ways to transform personal relationships, cultural relationships, societies, organizations, massive scale impact. So if you can start to, to get to like, what is the underwiring of this, what you're capable of accomplishing, it, it, it's really transformative. Yeah. A lot of people look at this and they think, oh, so what? So some dumb lawyers figured out how to waste $3,000 of taxpayer money getting free ho-hos or whatever, or Jelly Ranchers or whatever it was. It was Jelly Ranchers, right? Because that's always glued to the, that, that rapper. Yeah. Um, I thought Jolly Roger, I think, is kind of like a ho-ho knockoff, but yeah, I'll have to Google thing. that. <laughs> um, and then, it, you know, and so some kid did free calls to Japan. But really what this what this says is, you know, these same skill sets are like, what underpins the foundation of sales. It's what underpins the foundation of brands that have crazy cult loyalty where like everyone always buys that band's music. It's not just because the songs are catchy, right? And not always. Or or somebody will always sign up for that retreat that Jonathan's running or somebody will always buy the book from that one author. Uh, there's, there's a lot of psychology that goes into sales, branding, uh, what well, actual cults for that matter. Um, and all this stuff is interesting. Usually when it's used for good, it's even more interesting than when it's used for bad. But, you know, if you're bored or you're 13 years old, you start with the bad because that's really, you know, that's more exciting at the time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. For you, it's it, there was a bit of an inciting incident when you were a lawyer. You know, you're hanging out, you're practicing law, you're in a firm in Wall Street, New York. And you're working with somebody who you observe not being in the office a whole lot. Right. And like, so in the practice of law, there, there are these people that are known internally as the rainmakers, mm-hmm. right? And they don't usually service accounts a whole lot. They're the ones who are out there constantly interacting with other human beings, developing relationships, and they're generating all of these new people to basically serve into the firm. And then are the people serve them. And it sounds like for you, this was a really powerful moment because you're like, wait a minute, there's this whole other thing that is, plays a critical role in the success, not only of this one person, but of the entire endeavor that really isn't about this sort of like day-to-day granular practice of law. Yeah, this surprised me because like many people in their 20s, I was like, well, networking's for old people, so I don't really care. You know, I'm, I'll learn that when I have to. It's like, when I'm at the top, they probably make you join some country club. Maybe they even pay for it. I guess I'll learn how to play golf or something and then dot, dot, dot network. And that's it. It's a box I check. What I didn't realize was that's completely backwards. And what happens is that you build a network that's healthy, robust, and vibrant. And that's what takes you to the top in most cases in most industries. And for people who didn't really believe that, those same people sure had a lot of complaining to do about how people got ahead through nepotism or through brown nosing. And I'm like, isn't that the same? It's like the other side of the very same coin is just somebody who kind of unfairly already had a network built in 
or as good at ingratiating themselves. But the best people, the, the partner that you're talking about that was internally sort of known as the Rainmaker, he was never in the office, but he was a very young partner. And I remember I'd see him like in the office once and he'd be limping and I'd go, hey, what happened to your leg? Oh, I was doing jujitsu and, you know, something, something, arm lock, leg, knee thing, whatever. And I'm like, oh, you do jujitsu? He's like, yeah, a few times a week. And then he's like leaving early one day to go play golf. And then he's not even there at all the next couple of weeks. And I was like, hey, you're tan. You know, this is a guy from Brooklyn with a tan. So I'm like, okay, this <laughs> guy knows something that we don't know. And he's like, oh, I was on a cruise all week. And I was just like, why don't you ever have to work? You know, so I, of course, I didn't have the guts to say that. But one day, he he was supposed to be like my mentor. They assign you mentors uh, on Wall Street, and it means somebody who like is required contractually to answer your questions once every quarter for two minutes yeah, or 30 minutes, you know, in the basement Starbucks. And most of the mentor-mentee relationships were actually pretty good. It would be like they'd go see Blue Man Group and eat at McCormick and Schmick or whatever, like every week. And I thought like, oh, that's pretty good. Meanwhile, I haven't even seen this guy more than once at like orientation and that was it. So uh, to, to answer any questions, he takes me to the basement Starbucks and he's like, do you have any questions? And I'm, you know, I'm asking about financial derivative instruments, but I'm like, this doesn't even matter. Just ask him, just ask him. And I said, so why are you never in the office? You know, you're a partner. Do you just do you work from home all the time? And he's like, well, sometimes I work from home. Why? And I'm like, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing <laughs> like all day? And he goes, oh yeah, well, I, I generate business for the firm and that's sort of my primary focus. And I, it had never occurred to me that you would have to do that. I don't know what I thought. Yellow pages? I really don't even know how I thought firms got business at age 27, 28. I really don't know what I was thinking. And he's like, yeah, pretty much, you know, anytime there's a, our clients were investment bankers, right? Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and other sort of famous, famous fires, dumpster fires. And he's like, yeah, anytime there's an investment banker who's going to jujitsu or golfing or jogging or has an event or playing racquetball or squash, like my job is kind of to be there and, you know, make sure that they think of us first. And I just thought like, this is brilliant in its simplicity, but obviously I'm missing something because if that's the highest leverage you have, why aren't all of the partners doing this all the time in the junior associates and mid-level associates? Why aren't we the workhorses that are just doing all this grunt work and managing all the, the like when I walked in, I, one terrifying experience that I had as an attorney, right, is I walked into the office on like a Saturday night with a date and I thought, we're going to go into my office. It's going to be so cool. We're in the middle of Midtown. It's Saturday night in the middle of winter. And I'm going to show off that I have this really nice office in Midtown Manhattan and she's going to be really impressed. And I showed up and like all the partners were there. And I ran out of there as fast as I could because I was like, one, I don't want to get any work. And two, I don't want them to see me bringing dates in here. But three, it haunted me because I thought, why are they all here? And I remember on Monday, I asked one of the sort of fifth year associates, I go, so I came in on Saturday night and everyone was here. And he goes, yeah, that's pretty normal. And I was like, no, we're, this wasn't a closing. This is, is this my future? Am I going to be here on Saturday night at 11 p.m. when an junior associates get back from the bars, they're going to be passing me on my way home for the first time since Friday, you know, and, and that terrified me. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, th this is when they get a lot of work done. There's no phone calls, uh, maybe from a few clients to investment bankers who are also working, but there's not like day-to-day -day stuff. There's no errands. Their families are usually at their summer home or they're, you know, on vacation. So they get a lot of stuff done. And I, that just crushed me because I was like, oh, they have no life. But of course, Dave, this partner, 
Tuesday afternoon, not there again. And it's just, that blew me away. So I, I told myself, I said, okay, I figured out the phone freaking thing. I did some computer hacking stuff. I was doing the cell phone cloning. What, what's with this system? You know, this is, this, this is the real, this is like the black belt hack. Because if I can figure out how to generate business for the firm, then I will have a life that is enviable instead of just being like literally locked in a fancy skyscraper, you know, for 24 hours a day, seven days a week or six days a week, like all these other guys. So that was, that was where I was like challenge accepted. Where do I sign? What do I do now? Yeah. You know, I got to do this now. And I mean, for you, that, that sets in motion this sort of like autodidactic deep dive education into the world of human dynamics and social dynamics Mm -hmm. and how do people relate and, and send you eventually out of the law into the world of really going deep into this, developing ideas, framework systems, programming, educational experiences, building a company and a brand. Part mm-hmm. a big part of that is a podcast that that you were you almost stumbled your way, the way that we've talked about it in the past, into the world of podcasting. Before it was really even podcasting, you start sharing all this stuff. You build a remarkably big audience. Everything is humming along. You've got an educational company, you've got a leading media brand. And you're building a life around this. A couple years back, this machine that seems unstoppable, that's kind of like humming mm-hmm. along, that's building your new career, that's sort of like making a name for yourself, hits a moment where everything grinds down. Everything basically crashes and burns. Um, and you are tasked with grappling with this massive moment in your life where you have built like so much, you've devoted everything to building something, and then in the blink of an eye, it's largely gone from your existence. So without asking you to dish or throw anyone under the bus, this is Mm -hmm. somewhat past history for you. But the circumstances, I think, are really powerful for a lot of people now because there's a lot of lessons what you went through a a chunk of years ago that a lot of people are grappling with now. Can you walk me through sort of the crash and the rising process, because it really yeah. is a Phoenix-like experience in many ways. Yeah, thank you for, for saying that. It was surprising even for me, and I think it'll become clear as to sort of like why when I tell the story here, the brief story. But yeah, I did the other, I did a previous show, previous business for 11 years, starting in 2006. So think about podcasting now. This is my 15th year podcasting as of like, you know, this week. So that's a long time in tech. You know, the people who were in tech before me started like pets.com or whatever. You know, those are the people that were in, in tech before me, like 90s.com folks, AOL or whatever. So I, my company was nowhere near that size, just to, just to be clear. We're, not, we're talking about apples and oranges here. But I started this and I, I just went completely guts to the wall with it. And it took everything that I had, you know, I don't, there was no roadmap for startups, entrepreneurs, that wasn't really a thing. Like every entrepreneur I knew was like a dry, owned a dry cleaner or a restaurant. There wasn't like tech startups really in 2006 in New York that we knew of. Nobody was thinking about it. Facebook was relatively new, you know, the startup culture, or hustle culture, entrepreneur culture, like that didn't really exist yet. Not in the form it does now where it's like mainstreamed. Uh, it, it was really sort of a weird niche, niche thing. And I negotiated an amicable split with my partners because I, it was a dating company. I was getting married. I was really just like, hey, this is not for me anymore. The podcast that I had created, I started to try and interview more and more interesting people. You know, I have like scientists on there, but I also have like mobsters and, 
I just have a wide, a wide cross section of very diverse people. And that was really fun and fulfilling for me. And I realized, you know, money's great, but fulfillment is better. And that's something that a conclusion that I think a lot of healthy people come to in their mid to late 30s, early 40s. Depends on timing. If you're smarter, probably in their 20s, but I wasn't in that camp. So, uh, you know, I was going for the money early. And so we came up with an amicable split. And then some at some point, those guys were like, you know what? We don't actually have to honor our deal because you're probably not going to be making any money if you're starting a new business. So we're just not going to pay you and you can sue us. But like, you're just going to go broke doing it. So that was really kind of hurtful because I'd known these guys for, you know, over a decade and they really were just like, we're going to sort of sociopathically take advantage of you because we can. And I left and I talked with a lot of my mentors and friends in entertainment industry and otherwise yourself included. And I was like, what do I do right now? And it was like, just one of the common threads was don't lose momentum. And because a lot of folks said, oh, take a year off, go to Hawaii, learn how to surf. And I was like, oh, that sounds all right. But then most of the people that I knew who were actually really successful in business were like, do not take time off. You will lose steam. People will sort of forget about you. Your brand will start to decay. This is the ugly truth. Get on it right now. So my last episode of, to give you an idea of the turnaround, my last episode of that previous show was on a Thursday or a, no, Friday. On the following Tuesday, I released the first episode of the Jordan Harbinger show, so which I had recorded that Saturday. So it was like, last episode Friday, next day Saturday morning, record the first episode of the new show, get it produced and get it out there. So I really didn't lose any momentum. I really, I really kept rocking and rolling with it. And... Within the first eight months of the Jordan Harbinger show, we were, in terms of profitability, we were where the old company was after 11 years. So eight months of progress-ish economically anyway, in eight months, eight to 10 months. And now we're four years in, and it's not even close. I mean, I think we're something like 20x more profitable than the previous company, or it's, it's something like that, you know, in the best year. So, and the show is 10, 20 times the size, which is actually quite a surprise even for me because no no sane person thinks I'm going to leave my business of 11 years, but don't worry, I'll recover in f four years, but I'll be 20 times bigger. I was literally thinking when I, and I'm glossing over a lot, which we can dig into, but I, when I first went through the, 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 the separation, I thought, am I... How, in five years, am I even going to be where I was at, at this point? You know, like, is it worth trying? I was so demotivated because it was like looking at the top of a mountain that I was just on and going, okay, so it took me 11 years to climb that. If I really sprint, can I get there in five years? Is it even possible to get there anymore? Because we're not early to market. We're not the first show in iTunes anymore. Like I kind of, you know, we were the first 800 when I first started podcasting and now it's like there's eight million. You know, what do I, what do I do? So that was intensely demotivating. I definitely got quite depressed for like two weeks, not horribly clinically, but like anxiety attacks at night, can't sleep, wife freaking out. Cause I'm freaking out team saying, Jordan, you need to get it together because we're here working with you, but people are going to want to leave. If you keep like having panic meltdowns during meetings, dude, like put on your big boy pants. I heard that a lot from my producer who and my wife was like, you got to toughen up. And it's like, you know, my, my wife's like a five foot tall, like very like sort of small Asian lady. And she was like, toughen up, man. <laughs> you know, so so I got some tough love, but I also got a lot of compassion. And where that compassion and tough love came from 
was from my network. And this is sort of like the broader lesson, which is, you know, when you watch those ESPN documentary, I don't, I'm not a sports guy, but you see those documentaries and they're like, it's like an athlete that had a hundred million dollars and now he's broke and works at like a car dealership. And they go, man, you find out quickly who your friends are. They don't mean you're going to be so pleasantly surprised about how many friends you have, right? They're talking about the opposite scenario of when they say things like that. And so I fully expected to be extremely disappointed in my network. I don't even know if it's disappointed. I think I expected nothing. So I was like, well, I'm going to get nothing and it's going to meet my expectations. But I wasn't expecting to get anything much from it, especially outside of emotional support. Well, I had quite the opposite experience. You know, I I talk a lot on the show, on the Jordan Harbinger show, dig the well before you get thirsty and among other sort of catchy slogans that are probably stolen from smarter people than me. Uh, And that was something I decided to do, kind of walk the walk, because it's embarrassing if you don't. (laughs) And also, it was a pretty good idea to dig the well before you get thirsty and build relationships before you need them. But I re- no one who's doing this thinks one day I'm going to be so thirsty and screwed and like out on my butt and I better have these relationships in order. Nobody's thinking like that. Very few people pre- prepare for disaster. And if you don't believe me, look at how many people who pass away with no life insurance at age 43 from COVID or a car crash or something. You know, it's, it's horrifying. So for me to call people that I'd talked to a few times in the past few years just sort of acquaintances at best, as well as my close friends, as well as my many sort of like middle, you know, somewhere between acquaintance and close friend, you know, friends, I guess, regular friends. It was like 99 out of 100 were like, I'm going to help you right now. I'm going to mail your new show out to my email list. And I'm like, what's this guy's name again? John something. something. When did we meet? Oh, we had lunch once at Cafe Gratitude in San Diego at, at a conference Now this guy's going to send out an email to 300,000 people, which probably he could charge like $25,000 to do if he was, if I was Casper mattresses, right? I'd be paying like 50 grand for this. And he just did it because he was a friend of mine. And like Pat Flynn, who you probably know, was like, I'm sending this to everyone I know on my email list. That's a huge email list of podcast listeners. I had a lot of that. And it was, it was something that made me sort of sit back and be like, I'm the most fortunate person in the world. Yes, I kind of got screwed over by a former company, which, by the way, then sued me. But they saw how much momentum I was keeping and getting. And they actually filed a lawsuit probably about a year later or or several months later to slow me down because they thought I was going to go away. They literally told a mutual friend, I thought he was just going to kind of like go away. I don't know why he's banging his head against the wall trying to restart the business. It's never going to happen. And then a few months after that, they ended up suing me and and not winning, uh, by the way. And that was really funny to me because I thought they really thought that I was down. Like they counted me out. And a few other friends of mine had said, hey, man, I didn't tell you this at the time, but I'm, I was not sure you were going to be, you know, doing this again. And I said, you and me both. You know, this is just as much a surprise to me as it is for you. But I will, I will, I'll leave you with this, Jonathan, uh, uh, before I take a breath here and let you talk on your own show. Uh, I was so surprised at myself being able to do this and with my team, but I, I really think that my network was, the instrument, was instrumental in this because as, as many people have said, I can't believe this worked, and as many times as I agreed with them that said, I can't believe we're here, so many folks said, this is not a surprise to me at all. You know, I and and people were same people had said, I'll give you a 
$100,000 for your new business. I just want 5% negotiable. And, and I'm like, I don't have a business idea. And they're like, I don't care. If you're executing it, it's going to be a $2 million valuation within a year or two. So giving you 100 grand now to get 5% is already a good deal. Like I'm buying stock in Jordan Harbinger. So that made me like literally brought me to tears a few times, but also was a, it, it forced me to rethink a lot of my own sort of self-confidence. Cause I'm like, if these people that I sort of know or, or know well, but not super, super well, like this isn't my cousin or my brother offering me a hundred grand. This is somebody I've met three or four times in the business area and these people are like, I'm not surprised at all, but I'm surprised. You know, maybe I need to reevaluate my self-esteem here when it comes to the level of confidence I have to get something done. Yeah, it's funny. I recently saw Adam Grant share something um, around imposter syndrome. And he's like, you know, it's basically when other people believe that you're capable, you don't believe that you're capable, but you believe them, but you don't doubt your belief in your own capability but there's no basis for that if you don't believe yourself. <laughs> so it's like this right. weird spiral. Um, I want to deconstruct a little bit of what you shared. Mm-hmm. One of my curiosities, when you're like, okay, so I need to step into the next thing. I just devoted 11 years of my life to this one thing, successful, but man, this, I'm in a world of hurt right now. I'm smart. I know how to deconstruct systems. I have a network. I could literally do a lot of different things and go a lot of different directions. Was this the only thing that you considered at that moment in time? Were you like, I'm going right back into podcasting, into media, into tech? Or were you like, let me pause for a moment. Let me like pull out the whiteboard and throw as many different ideas against it because maybe I'm going to go in an entirely different direction. It's funny. I was just talking about this yesterday with a friend of mine. They're like, oh, how did you know you wanted to go straight back into podcasting? You know, you're... What they were saying was, you can do different things. Like, I was a lawyer. It's not like I went to school for podcasting. I started a podcast, and now I know nothing other than how to make a podcast for a living. Like, if a lawyer gets laid off, they don't go, you know what? I'm going to be a cop, right? They just go and do other, they go join another firm or start their own firm. Dentists, you know, they don't change careers. People don't change careers that dramatically that often. But that wasn't really the case for me. And so a lot of folks said, why don't you? pause for at least a few days or a week and like kind of figure out what you can do. And a lot of people are like, go into YouTube, join another type of platform. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do a totally different thing? Why don't you step away from the mic and do something behind the scenes because you can manage things well too, maybe, you know? And I had all these different ideas, live events and products, and I'm going to do this and do that. And then email marketing this and partner up with this person that. And my wife was like, okay, fair enough. It sounds a little miserable, but we got to learn earn a living somehow. I mean, you know, we're, we're we got to make money, you know, so we'll do whatever you think we can do or, or that we have to do. But then it was like, well, I'm going to keep my podcast going because I like it. And also because, well, I don't want to lose momentum. So as an insurance policy, like I said, record on Saturday, release the following Tuesday. And as I was doing it, I just felt so comfortable. And I was like, I love this, you know, even, and I go, if, somebody said like, what would you do for free? And I was like, well, podcasting, I've said this a million times, you know, if I didn't get paid to podcast, I would still do it, but I'd also have some other job to pay the bills. I'd probably be a podcast consultant or something, right? So if that exists, so I I would do it. And I thought, why am I trying to be like live events, sell online products, whatever the ideas I had at the time that I wasn't really crazy about email marketing when I'm good at this, I love this. And I know that I can monetize it at least a little, even if I take like a 50% pay cut, I'm still doing okay. 
you know, like I'll survive on it and my wife will get a job and we'll be fine. You know, like we'll just be normal middle-class people. And so it really sort of like sucked me right back in. It wasn't like I was trying to get away from podcasting, but I was open-minded about doing something else just because the growth of shows is very slow, as you and I talk about all the time. And I didn't want to be like a YouTuber because that's a young man's game, first of all, anyway. And second of all, it's, you know, not my bag. And I just kept going, but I love conversations. And podcasting is the best place to have long-form conversations, bar none. And if it's a hobby and I'm doing it and I'm good at it and I've monetized it before, it just didn't make sense to switch. It was kind of, it just didn't make sense to switch. It wasn't like banging my head against the wall. It wasn't a slog. It came really naturally. I had all my, a huge network in the space and uh, this didn't hurt. My network podcast one uh, was at the time owned by Norm Pattis, who's like one of the wealthiest guys in LA. And he's probably got half a billion dollars or something like that. Or, or way more, I'm not even sure. And he said, you know, I've been in, this is a guy who's been in radio since I think the 60s. He basically invented syndicated radio. And look, I'm going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but this is, I swear it's for the purposes of this uh, story here. He said, you're one of the more talented guys that I've met in my career in radio. And so you can do anything you want. And I thought, if this guy who has no real incentive to lie to me, I mean, what's he going to get from puffing me up, you know, I'm, I'm 35 or 38 or whatever it was at the time, uh, 38, 37. What is this guy who's 75 needed puff me up for? I have nothing to offer him right now, right? I'm starting from zero. It's not like he's trying to get me to sign on to podcast one. I'm already, I was already there and now I have nothing, no platform. And I thought if this guy says that I'm talented enough to succeed in this business. And he's one of the most authoritative people, except for maybe like, you know, Howard Stern or something like that could say that. And you'd go like, oh my gosh, this is that kind of reaction. It'd be like if LeBron James told you that you're pretty good at basketball and wasn't just blowing sunshine up your, your you know what? So I was like, okay, I got to just at least give this a shot. And he then said, hey, if you sign on with Podcast One, do a two-year deal, we'll rebuild your show. It's probably going to be pretty slow, but we can sort of give you a loan up front so you can pay your bills and whatever. And so I asked him for some money up front so that I didn't have anything to worry about and I could rehire all my staff. And he cut me a big fat check and gave me a two-year contract, which, like, why? Why did he do that? You know, there was no reason to do that. That's why I... It's one of the reasons I'm never, you know, leaving podcast one until Norm fully retires and maybe not even then because they like saved my bacon and encouraged me to do what I love. It's it'd be like losing a leg and then you get drafted by the Detroit Pistons and they cut you and they're like, you're going to be fine. You're going to regrow that leg and you're going to be great. You know, that's how it felt. Um, and it felt as impossible as that. And yet here we are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. The things that dropped into your orbit, but they dropped into your orbit not just randomly, they dropped into your orbit because you had spent years developing relationships, because mm -hmm. also you had spent years devoted to the craft. Like one of the things that we've talked about and, and you know, is that you look at this not just as, ooh, I love to do it, I'm gonna turn on the mic and just go. Like you study the craft of what this is. You study how do I do it better? You deconstruct what you've done in the past. You deconstruct what other people are doing in this space and you're sort of like constantly trying to figure out you're taking that same systems thinking strategic approach to mastering and craft and saying how do i commit myself to that so that when something happens like this you know like norm wasn't just reacting to the fact that you happen to be like front and center with him 
He's reacting to the fact that he sees the result of years of devotion to craft, you know, showing up mixed with whatever innate talent you bring to that and saying, huh, there is something really distinct here. But you made another decision back then that fascinated me too. Um, and I remember when you were sharing this with me, because in the early days, we were, I remember us talking and I was asking you, I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that you're going to podcast and only podcast. You're not going to do this <laughs> or that or this or that, but mm -hmm. what if it fails or what if it doesn't work? You've got like, you're like, you're like moving into family mode in your life. And then you're like, but what, what about hedges? What about building these other things? What about multiple streams of revenue? Like most companies try and develop. And your answer to me was like stone cold. I'm doing one thing. Like you don't get it. I am doing one thing. Yeah. And that, that always kind of like blew me away. That makes sense. That sounds like something I would say. Um, <laughs> I do believe in doing one thing. You know, I get a lot of people that say, hey, can we do this like particular thing? I mean, just the other day, someone was like, can you write a, a book? Would you write a book? And I was like, well, I don't have time. And they're like, no, 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 no. we'll get a ghostwriter and da, da, da. It'll be like minimal investment of your time. And I thought that doesn't sound right, <laughs> but, but also it doesn't sound like how I roll or how I do things anyways. But I also knew that you can't, it's, I've never seen anyone split their focus between a ton of different things and do really, really, really well in one of them. And even sort of famously, Jack Dorsey's the CEO of Stripe and until recently the CEO of Twitter. What's Twitter doing? How's that stock been doing the last four years? It has done nothing, right? It like you could have bought stock in bird dung and you know and you would have done better than if you bought twitter stock in terms of at least forward upward sort of to the right motion on that stock it has done nothing and the reason is be part in part because you can't split your focus you just can't do it and i knew that if i was going to rebuild a business that i built over 11 years if i was going to do that in 5 or slash 1 i really had to put everything i had into working on the podcast. And then later on, I can come up with some diversified source of uh, streams of income. And I, I look, don't get me wrong. I believe you probably should have diversified streams of income. I think it's a bad idea if you're only selling widgets. It's just, you're, you're very fragile at that point. So I have some things in the works. You know, I do some consulting, I, I which I've always kind of done. Um, I'm doing one product that is going to be for my audience specifically, on a specific subject, you know, but I don't want to do, like, I very much have resisted, hey, do live events. And then when you're doing live events, you can sell merch and then you can sell a book. And then when you sell the book, it's part of your funnel for your course. And then when you do that course, then you have the mastermind, the upsell from there. Because everybody I know who's doing that and doesn't love coaching, like you, you know, like guys like you like love coaching or whatever, but everybody I know who does that and doesn't love love coaching and is also or or is just like not really cut out for it and is just doing it because it's a rev stream they're miserable and their customers frankly it's sort of it's reflected in the reviews i went to this event it was okay i guess like do i want to run an event that's just okay i guess not really and do i want to write a book where everyone sort of reads it and goes this was a guy who wrote a book because somebody offered him a million dollars and he decided to write a book and i'm left having learned maybe one or two things from it, but I'm not blown away. Like, I don't really want to, I don't want to create things like that. And a friend, a friend of mine that you probably know, Todd Herman, but he told me once, he's like, man, you're leaving so much money on the table. And I said, yeah, I know. I think about it. I get FOMO. And he goes, nah, you're like an artist, you know, like you're, this is how you do it. 
your there's a reason your art's popular and it's because you leave money on the table. You know, you don't sit there and tell everybody to buy things from you constantly and you don't have a bunch of different stuff that you're doing instead of your art. Like that's what you do. And I never thought of myself as a creative, which is sort of funny because like podcasting is inherently creative. However, there is something to that. You know, I, I am a focus all on one thing kind of guy until I diversify. But what I, I will tell you the difference is I don't go all in on podcasting one year and then all in on cryptocurrency the next year and then all in on NFTs the third year and then all in on question mark the year after that. I do all in on podcasting and then I slowly like carve a little tiny piece of the pie out for investing and another tiny little piece of the pie out for startup advisory and, you know, and then another one for a product. But the 95% of my time is still, how do I make the Jordan Harbinger show as good as it can be? And how do I market that product so that more and more people are impacted by it? Everything else is just kind of extra. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation I had in the very early days of this show, back when we were filming, actually. In fact, it was in Colorado, where I am now. And uh, we went over to uh, Keystone, Colorado, where Brad Feld was uh, in, in one of his places. And Brad is this really beautiful human being and also a very successful multi-time founder and venture capitalist. And during the conversation, you know, I, we were just talking about a lot of his philosophies and what he learned. And he, and he shared, you remember, you know, he said something like, you know, my dad once told me, in this life, you pick your 2% and you put everything against it. And he's like, mm. as much as I can try and follow that, it's not always the easiest thing to do. That's what I do. I pick my 2% and I put everything against it. And it really, you know, it's, it's what you're describing. And even folks who, you know, when you look at them 10 years down the road and you're like, oh, but you've got this other successful thing going on. It's it. Very often the people who have that, you know, w what people don't realize is that they actually spent the first eight out of those 10 years mm -hmm. doing one thing at a world-class level. And then they built enough equity, they built enough stability, they built enough platform, enough relationships, whatever it may be, so that they could leverage that to much more easily and in a much more accelerated basis, run these other experiments in different domains without doing anything to damage that mm -hmm. core that continues to be their sort of like primary source of everything. It was never, let me get six months into this one thing, and then I'm going to go six months into the next thing, and I'm going to... It wasn't splitting 20% of the energy every six months into different things. It was the vast majority of the time with one to make it extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that becomes this massive lever for all of the other things that they want to experiment with after that. And it's very overweighted in one thing. But when you look at it down the road, you know, if you don't know that history, you don't realize that that was actually the mechanism that made it all happen. It's very, very true. Now, if, what's funny is as many people as were pressuring me to like write a book early and do an online product early and do live events early, now that the Jordan Harbinger show as a platform is big enough, people will be like, hey, would you keynote this event for us and we'll give you, you know, out, insert outsized amount of money that doesn't seem quite rational or fair, you know? And I'm like, yeah. So this is like the amount of money I would have made off of running the entire live event myself early on, Right. So, or someone will say, hey, can you do this uh, voiceover for this video game and we're going to give you like a slice of it and da, da, da. And it's just like that comes from the result of doing one thing well enough and visibly enough that it actually has very outsized returns. And that's worth, that's worth pursuing. I had a conversation with somebody in, in publishing recently and they were saying, yeah, you, you know, want to revisit our conversation from five years ago about writing a book. And I was like, you know, 
I thought about this and the reason I said no then was this, 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 and this. And now I don't really want to do one because I'm building this platform. And as the platform gets bigger, I'm still going to be able to sell the book to the audience. And I'm still going to be able to make a lot of money for the publisher and for us as authors. And she said, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. We basically argued about this last time we talked. And she goes, well, early on, you know, things weren't really sure. It wasn't sure if you're going to be over here, over there, doing this or doing that. So we wanted to capitalize on it. But now it's really clear that you're on a rocket ship. And so, you know, we don't really have to get on early. You know, if you're building a big platform, you're building a big platform, you can write the book later and you'll just sell that many more copies of it. And I was like, okay, that's so funny. Because before everybody was all worried about sort of cashing in on my brand as they thought maybe it was going downwards. But now that it's going upwards, they're like, oh yeah, take your time. You got plenty of time to write a book. You can write a book later on. You can write a book in 10 years. No big deal. You know, like they didn't even care. I just thought that was fascinating because you're right. It's a lever. And once people see that lever, they're like, oh, I get it. But before that, they're kind of like, well, you're just wasting your time. You know, cash in now while you're trend while you're trendy. And I think if you prove you have staying power, that's also kind of a big deal. You know, the the show I did before was was popular for a long time. And no, again, going previous conversation, nobody really thought you could rebuild something like that. So we rebuilt something that's 10, 20 times larger than that. So it sort of shows like, hey, if I'm putting my mind to it, if I want to create something and do it, it's going to work in this niche. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just in no hurry. You know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now and having a big platform like this diversified income streams are important, but it really is like podcasting would have to stop being a thing. I'd have to get banned from every podcast platform for some thing. And they they can't even ban kooky Alex Jones from every platform. So I think I'm pretty safe talking about nothing political and focusing on science and interesting personalities. I mean, no day. Like I'd have to get hit by a beer truck. I think that's the real danger here. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, you've experienced over the last four or five years, but a lot of these lessons that they are really relevant to so much of what's going on right now. Like as we're recording this conversation, we're, you know, this will air a little bit later, but we're heading into the final days of 2021. A lot of people are looking at kind of turning a page into 2022, but there's this phenomenon that we've all been talking about over the last four or five months in particular that, you know, the media is calling the great resignation. Um mm. There are, you know, reports of in August, 4.3 million people leaving their jobs. In September, 4.4, 4.5 million people leaving their jobs at every level, from the C-suite to front lines to day labor, and all for different reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people for other opportunities. Many people are actually leaving without having the next thing lined up. Mm. And people are trying to figure out, like, well, why is this happening? And some people are like, well, we're being called back into the office. But actually... That's not really bearing out to be the reason. Yeah. And then people are like, well, you know, there are people are waiting for more money. Um, to, and, and it turns out that that's actually now there's money being thrown at people and that's not bringing them back. People are trying to figure out what's actually going on here. I'm really curious, you know, like the, with your lens on society, on culture, on how people relate on what they want out of life. What's your take on this moment? I have noticed that this is happening. I mean, I've I've read about it, I should say. I don't have any sort of anecdotal or empiri- empirical data that the New York Times doesn't have. But when I look at this, it reminds me of, you know, it's hard to put myself in someone else's shoes, but I would have to say when I got laid off from my law firm job, which everybody in my class did because it was 2008 and any sort of financial law firm was like, hey, we're probably going to be out of business next year. Go find another job. and I felt so free by that, but a lot of my colleagues really didn't. You know, they were panicking. They were really freaking out. It's kind of rightfully so. I mean, most of them didn't have a parachute or anywhere to land. We were all broke. We were all, you know, drowning in student debt, et cetera. But I was thinking I can finally do all of these things that I've wanted to do, primarily focus on my show. uh, And I was on the radio at that time, as well as doing the podcast, you know, Sirius XM. So like that was kind of a nice vote of confidence. I had coaching ideas that I wanted to do. I wanted to travel again. And I was still 27, 28 and had just gotten out of law school. So what do you need to survive when you're that age? $25,000 a year, you know, Uh, as long as you get a roof over your head, you could have 10 roommates, which at like at times I had like seven, you know, whatever, who cares? Just don't touch my eggs. You know, that's, that's what my life was back then. I think a lot of that has spilled over into adulthood where adults are going, you know, 
I don't need to do this for the rest of my life. I don't need to be stuck in this sort of unhappy environment. I Yes, I went home and worked from home, but the freedom I had working from home was really incredible. And it got me thinking about what's really important to me, spending time with my kids and husband or wife, whatever it is. And then, so that's why I think people say, oh, it's because they're being called back into the office. But what that, it, it's, that's not really it, right? What it is, is people said, well, if I don't have to work in an office, maybe I don't have to work for Chase Bank or whatever at all. You know, maybe I can actually, if, if the whole world of work can be turned upside down in all these things we held sacred, like being in my cubicle at the certain special time every day after fighting everyone else on a commute to work, if that's no longer sacred and the the sort of unavoidable truth of life, what other paradigms are just rotten and ready to break? Maybe the nine to five, you know, maybe the idea that I can't make money metalsmithing fine garden tools and knives in my garage. Like maybe, I, maybe that's a paradigm that can break. And so people started trying things and realizing that they might not be able to make as much money as they did in banking, metalsmithing tools in their garage, but they're making half as much and they're a lot happier. And guess what? You don't need $180,000 a year to live nicely, you know, in, in especially now that they can move. So there's been all these things that have started to change. People, and pe like you know, people started to move out of California or New York or Michigan or Ohio to somewhere else because they were not tethered to the office anymore. And that's another pair. Like if you grew up and you worked there for 20 years, now the fact that you can commute to work using Zoom has changed the game again. So it's about a, almost like, an, a, I hate using these stupid cliches, but you'll know what I mean. It's almost like a consciousness shift, like an awareness of None of this is real. It's like when you found out money wasn't real and wasn't backed by gold and you're like, you know, 16, you go, wait a minute. So this is worth something just because we all have like hallucinated that it's valuable and we've kind of tacitly agreed that it is, but it's just a piece of paper at the end of the day. Like that's the kind of thing that is that's shifting in everyone's mind. And it's happening because so many of our sacred cows have died at the same time. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting take. It's sort of like dominoes tumbling, right? You know, mm -hmm. and we're so focused just on what we think are like the big, the first domino that's tumbled, not realizing that the deeper reason that so many people are probably making these big disruptive changes is because it's like, it's the fifth domino. Like it's, that's the, the, where people are just starting to realize, oh, if this is, isn't true and this isn't true and this isn't true. Well, what about all the other like 10 assumptions that I made when I made the bargain to do this for the rest of my life? Maybe none of it's true. Mm -hmm. And what if I test that now? And, and I feel like we're in this window where there's a forgiveness. There's like a society-wide forgiveness for running experiments and for doing something different and doing things that three years ago would have been looked at as being irresponsible or aberrant. And now people are like, no, we're all in this mm -hmm. together. Everybody is running these experiments. So now like if, if you go and do this thing or try this thing or move or try and start your own thing, people are like, yeah, I get that there's a suspension of social judgment now mm -hmm. that I think is, is generating a level of freedom to experiment and to try things and to question that I don't remember seeing in my lifetime. No, I I'm, I'm with you. Like, look, three years ago, if you say I'm quitting my job to metal Smith knives in my garage, everyone's like, are you crazy or just high? Like what is wrong with you? And now if you do it, people go, Oh man, that sounds really, that's, that's great. Cool. How's that working out? Oh, great. You know, I started as a side hustle when I was home from not having a commute. I have two free hours every day. So I just started doing it and I put them up on Etsy and I'm making $3,000 a month doing it. 
and I only make 4000 at my regular job, so I'm out, man. You know, I'm not coming in on Saturday anymore. So there's been a lot of that. And, you know, another thing, and this is, again, just a complete theory based only on the data that everyone else has, but we've seen a bunch of relationships crumble and the divorce rate is supposedly up and things like that. And there's probably some truth to the fact that two people working at home are now just finding out after 20 years that they don't really like each other that much and they're getting on each other's last nerve. There's probably some of that. But I think a lot of it is also the same thing that you just said, where they've been kind of thinking about the end of their relationship for a really long time. Going to work and focusing on their career outside of the house probably allowed them to put it out of sight, out of mind. But now that there's a suspension of that judgment and they're faced with all of their problems, it's kind of like, you know, now's maybe not a bad time to split up and do other things because we've faced with the unavoidable truth of the situation and also... Hell, if you're going to quit jobs and knife smith in your garage, well, I'm going to quit my job and do this other thing. And, and for that matter, I'm moving to Florida, right? Like there's the paradigms are all shifting. The sacred cows are all dying. And so what if people judge you for splitting up? They're already doing that for everything else. And like you said, that suspension of social judgment is kind of like it, it's in full swing. There's momentum here where there's a lot of big changes. That's why we see people who don't like big changes going into overdrive, right? The regressives are like, oh my God, we need to re rewind to 1959, <laughs> you know? Uh, not to get political or anything, but like you see a lot of that. And part of that is a reaction to what what's gotten done recently. I mean, we've allowed gay marriage. We've let people quit their jobs and work from home or whatever. We are allowing people to do all kinds of stuff, work on the internet and do podcasts for a living. Like, how dare you? That's a fake job. You can't make a living doing that. That's not allowed, right? There's all kinds of things. Like, so you're going to skip college because it's too expensive and go to trade school. This, you know, all of these things are changing. And so I think it's only a matter of time to like, we kind of examine every truth we've always held dear and go, huh, no. Maybe not. Even even on the edge of this, on the fringe of this same idea is uh, going back to the money thing is the cryptocurrency idea, right? Like a lot of this, the hacker space and the crypto sphere is like, hey, money's not real. And if you needed proof, look at the state of the world versus our stock market and our economy. Does that make sense to you? Hedge, baby. And they're buying Bitcoin and, you know, doing blockchain stuff like we're sort of all. I don't want to say waking up because it makes me sound like QAnon or something, but you know what I mean, right? We're all sort of getting an awareness that wasn't there before and it's spreading like wildfire. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. And, and I also feel like there's a window right now where like that suspension of social judgment, that openness to running these different experiments, at some point that window is going to close. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of like human nature. There's, there is a, a, a time limit to it, whether it's a couple of months or a couple of years, I have no idea. But at some point you know, people are going to sort of gravitate back to some level of groundedness, of stability, of mm -hmm. form of, and structure. And I'm really fascinated by how different people are taking advantage of this window to either push to try and see like, what is the great, you know, like, how do I turn the great resignation into the great reinvention for me? Or try and rush back to the, the former status quo as much as humanly possible before that window changes. And it is really fascinating to see how people are making choices within this window. But I do think I would love to see people take this opportunity to really think about what are the assumptions that I made? What are the bargains that I made that got me to this point in my work, in my relationships, in my life? And are those the bargains that I want to keep making for the next season mm -hmm. of my life? Because there, there's this one moment that we're in 
right now where there is a window of opportunity and forgiveness to try and, and create a new bargain. And for those who don't even, it doesn't mean you have to change things, but for those who don't even investigate whether they want to continue that bargain, mm-hmm. I just think it's a wasted opportunity. Yeah, I'm with you. Look, to be, like you said, you're allowed to decide you love your life and that you love your job and that you love your commute. Like, yeah, that's fine. But you're right. There's there's something that's a shame about if lawyers are good at this, right? We're, we, smart people in general or overachievers or overthinkers are really good at rationalizing existing behavioral patterns and deciding that that's ha- the way it's got to be because it's comfortable. And so especially I would say everyone should do what you're saying, but especially professionals who find themselves being like, well, I couldn't possibly X, Y, Z because even doctors are going, I don't need a practice with an office. I can go to where I'm needed. You know, I can, or I can do doctors without borders, which I was going to do. And when I retired or join the Peace Corps or whatever, all of these things that, you know, maybe weren't going to be possible are now actually, well, probably possible. And so it, it is a good time to sit down, especially because it's the new year, right? Like if you're going to go on the resolutions train, maybe start thinking about what you want to do this year. And maybe all you do this year is start wrapping up things so that in 2023, you're ready to really take a major drastic move. No one's asking you to like sell all your belongings and join Hare Krishna, you know? And I think that a lot of times people get scared to make big moves because it always looks like leaving society when really you're just... uh taking a left turn. Yeah. Um, and, and again, like, like we've both said, this is, this is not a rally call for everyone to turn the world upside down and do something different. You, it's a rally call to just take a moment, take this beat and just examine like the state of your life, the state of your choices. You may find that you're actually pretty good with them and that's cool. That's amazing. Then you don't have to endure that the, the, the inevitable pain of disruption and of, of change. That's totally cool. But, um, but at least take this moment like, and, and ask the questions. Um, you know, we're having this conversation also at another interesting moment for you personally. You know, you're, you become a family man over the time that I've known you. Um, mm-hmm. As we have this conversation, literally like on any, any given hour right now, you're expecting baby number two. Yeah, <laughs> um, like any minute now. Like a, <laughs> right, my exactly. wife could come barging in the door and be like, I had a kid while you were doing this podcast. I know, just so I, was, know. I, was, I, was, I was like watching my phone today. I'm like, am I going to get a text from him saying, uh... <laughs> Can't we need do to it, put got this baby in one bit. hand. Right. Yeah. Can't do it, cutting an umbilical cord. Right. Yeah. So, so, so here's my curiosity. Like, you're a guy who tends to really look at your circumstance um, and reevaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it moving forward. As you sort of like move into this, this next season of your life and really look at the life that you want to live, not just the work that you're doing, but the mm-hmm. life that you want to live, the quality of that life, about to have child number two. Are you in a process of sort of reevaluating things? And, and I'm curious also over the last few years, whether you feel like stepping into this new role as a parent and, and like soon to be um, you know, like parent of two kids has changed you in meaningful ways, changed what you want out of life, changed the way you devote yourself, oh, yeah. what you say yes and no to. Yeah, yeah, it really has. I spent all of 2019, eh, all, most of 2019, trying to do interviews in person because there's a quality to the conversation that's different in person. Some ways it's better. It depends though. And when the pandemic hit, I had a, I don't know, X month old child. And I had 
really been missing him because I'd been, I'd go away. You know how it is when you have little kids. You go away for the weekend. You come back and you're like, wait, he can talk now and say these. Da-. Like, when did he start making sentences? Oh, yesterday. You were at the airport, you know. And I felt like I was missing a lot. But I was like, well, you know, I'm still here 90 percent of the time. It's also it's for the good of the business, yada, yada, yada. All the rationalizations that we we just talked about. And the pandemic hit, and it's like, there's no travel. And I thought, you know, I did the show for 12, 13 years remotely. Let's just keep doing it remotely. And now I'm like, ah, I'm only going to travel when I want to. You know, if I'm interviewing somebody that I've always wanted to meet, sure, I'm going to fly to New York and make it happen, you know, uh, and I'll do a bunch of stuff while I'm there. But I'm not going to, I'm no longer going to fly halfway around the world to interview a scientist who's like, why didn't we do this on Zoom, man? You know, the answer is, I don't know. We should have done it on Squadcast or whatever. So I stopped doing any sort of unnecessary travel. And then that got me thinking, well, wait a minute, what else is unnecessary? Oh, a lot of these sort of, hey, can I jump on the phone with you for an hour for no reason kind of phone calls? Not, felt, you know, not with friends. I want to talk to my friends, but I don't want to talk to a perfect stranger just because I kind of feel like I probably should maybe sort of kind of need to do it. That's all gone. Meetings are gone. And I mean, even... Even meetings in my own company where we probably could have skipped it and done some sort of notes thing. I'm like, we're skipping that. I really started to sort of shave things off because I'm like, if this is annoying for me or something I don't want to do, it's kind of bad to waste everyone else's time doing it too. But it, it also ended up affecting the work, the the Jordan Harbinger show. And And what I mean by that is, you know, I would release a show that I thought was good. And I'd release a show that I thought was great. But there were a few shows, and as I'm sure you're, you've done, where you're like, I'm kind of on the fence. Like, it's good, but is it is it good enough? I feel like it's good enough, but I'm not sure. Now I go, now I think of it like this. Am I going to waste 300,000 people's time, or am I just going to have wasted mine and the guest? Which one is the lesser evil here? You know, and it started to, because I used to be like, I can't email them and tell them I can't release the episode. That's, I just don't want to deal with that. Now it's such an obvious calculation that I'm here to serve the audience. Why? How dare I waste that amount of time? I mean, if you think about it, if 300,000 people really did spend that hour and most of them didn't like it, yeah, it's bad for the business, it's bad for the show. But like to take it to the extreme, you've wasted so much human potential. Like you could have cured cancer in that 300,000 hour time block that you distributed over all of those innocent people who are like, well, I'm now dumber for having heard that one. Thanks, Jordan. You know, I, I think of it like that. So it's a, it's a higher standard for the work. It's a higher standard for my own time. It's a higher, higher standard for my family. And that's just been good all around. And yes, I, what I'm working on to answer your question, what I'm working on in 2022 and beyond is I'm going to grow the Jordan Harbinger show. I'm going to scale it. I'm going to market it and things like that, like you and I have talked a little bit about um, offline. But one of the reasons I'm doing that is because it allows me actually to work less later. And this sort of might be obvious to everyone, but just in case it's not, you know, if I work really hard now and I scale things up, my, my job at the end of the day is to read books and talk to smart people, right? So if I'm doing that for the show and a hundred people listen, great. But if a million people listen, it's the same amount of work. I just get much more of an impact. And of course the advertisers are, the, the rate goes up significantly, right? So why not scale up to that level and 
then later on, maybe I only do one show a week instead of three or two instead of three. Or maybe I take a three-month period off every year and I don't release anything or I release very sporadic shows. And now, I, and since I've scaled up, I don't have to do any weird things like, well, I can't afford to go on vacation. I don't have to make lifestyle cuts. I don't have to stop donating to the charities I like because I've scaled up in that way. Or, I mean, what if the economy gets nuked by, uh, you know, another pandemic or or who knows, podcasting goes out of style and my audience gets cut in half because everybody's doing metaverse shows and I can't quite figure that one out, right? Well, if my income gets cut in half, but it's already twice as much as I need, then I'm okay. And so that's kind of the way that I look at it. The line, though, is how much work am I willing to do to get there? And if it's two hours a week of marketing and I'm enjoying it, fine. If it's 10 hours a week of marketing and I hate every second of it and I haven't had dinner with my family in three months, now we got a problem, you know? So I have to, I have to sort of balance that out. But I, I'm trading a little bit now for way more time with my kids and family when they're old enough, especially to remember spending time with dad as well. Mm. Yeah, and what I is important, I think, about that also is that these aren't default decisions. These are decisions mm -hmm. that you're actually making very intentionally, but sort of thinking yeah. through, what do I want? Like, what do I value in like, and maybe it's changed. Like maybe your values 10 years ago were different than they are now. What do you believe mm -hmm. in that? And like, you're sort of sitting down at this moment and saying, here's what's important to me. And here's what I'm willing to do. Here are the sacrifices I'm willing to make. Here's what I'm willing to suffer. And here's what I also want to want to pursue in the name, not just of where I want to go, but also how I want to feel on a day-to-day -day basis now. But it's a very intentional process for you. And I think it's important to really bring that to the surface because a lot of times I think we've, we fall into making decisions like this just kind of by default. We just start doing it without really examining what are my assumptions underneath that? What are the values that are driving this? And just taking a beat and saying, why am I doing this? It's very worthwhile to make. And, and I know that a lot of people are like, well, duh. But you'd be, I mean, I don't know if you'd be surprised, but many people would be surprised. I should, I'll speak for myself. I spent a lot of years just being like, no, 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 head down, work as hard as possible. And when I look back, I go, what did I do from 28 to 35? All I did was work. I didn't, I traveled here and there, but I was kind of miserable. And I'd convinced myself that I had to do it that way. And I put up with like unending amounts of frustration. I used to call them my post office days because I would wake up in the morning and go, you know, if I just worked at the post office, all I'd do is go drive that truck and deliver mail. I'd know exactly what I was going to be doing today. I probably wouldn't run into any big problems. That sounds nice. That's predictable. And, and that's no offense to people who deliver the mail. It's a very important job. But I don't think anybody sort of wakes up in the morning who's an entrepreneur and thinks, I can't wait to be not doing this anymore. Like, that's not a good sign. You're allowed to go through a dip, but one, the dip shouldn't be years long, and two, it shouldn't make you so miserable that you don't even leave your room. There, was, there were times, I remember I had to go to the doctor, and she's like, what's wrong? And I, I can't remember exactly what brought me there, but I was like, also, I have hip pain. And she's like, are you sitting a lot? And I said, yeah. Well, what's your chair like? Oh, I just sit on my bed. And she goes, well, why don't you get a chair? And I go, well, I mean, I just kind of wake up and open up my laptop, and then, you know, she's like, well, how long are you there? And I said, well, let's see, I'm there, and then I get up and I maybe I'll go eat like two meals. I usually skip breakfast. And she's like, so it kind of came down to, wait a minute, you're on your bed from when you get up until like 11 PM. And then you just lay back down 
And I said, yeah, pretty much. And she's like, yeah, this you need to get a therapist like yesterday. This is not the reason you have hip pain is because you have this, you know, impingement from not moving for three years, man. You're going to have back problems. You're going to have knee problems. Like you're going to have everything wrong with you. But mostly you psychologically, you're just a mess because you're not leaving your dark bedroom ever. This is like prison, you know, and, and I thought, oh, yeah. That's a good point. I'm living this so-called free life. You know, I have this entrepreneurial gig and like I'm, I'm more miserable than I've ever been. Thankfully, that was almost 10 years ago now. But I, I just look back and I go, man, I lost those years in many ways. You know, there just there was no nothing was going on. Yeah, it was so, it was so toxic. And sometimes you look back and you're like, um, how much of those years were necessary to get me to a point where I was actually willing to consider a different way of stepping into my life Yep. and being at this moment, like which you happen to be in like a pretty incredible place. So that also feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation today. So hanging out in this container of good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Hmm. You know, Having kids will change this for you, as I'm sure you're aware. Maximizing the impact you have on, the good impact, I should say, that you have on your kids and family and those around you has become paramount for me. And one of the reasons I love doing the Jordan Harbinger show is I almost get to reach through the internet into people's ears and be like, and impact them in almost a parental slash big brother slash hopefully cool friend way as well. So it's almost like I'm able to scale that. It used to be just a fun thing to do, a great way to make money, fun conversations. But now that I've had kids, it really is obvious that the best way to live a good life is to create other humans that add value and also make sure that you're constantly serving your audience. As corny as it sounds, you know, none of us are going to be here forever. So kind of all we have as a legacy is our impact on others. And since I'm not taking us to Mars or anything like that or inventing uh, ways to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, the impact that I have is really all that matters. You know, n- no one cares how much money you make. No one cares that you rented a yacht for your 50th birthday party. All they're going to remember is what you did for them. And so to be able to help people and make that my job and a job that I enjoy, and it also helps my family, it's like this is the best stroke of luck, like the finest stroke of luck and the best life that I can imagine living. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation that we had with Debbie Millman about designing your life as this perpetually evolving experience. You'll find a link to Debbie's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.